So if you want to turn to your Bibles to Acts 1 and follow through, you're more than welcome to do that. This is the first chapter of Acts we're going to be looking at today. And I want to start with this quote. See if you recognize this. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Recognize that? George Orwell's 1984. You get the prize down here in front. These were the words that he wrote in his book, which was a fictional society at the time. It placed, it endorsed an ideology above everything else that matters. History, heroes, rights and wrongs are illegitimate in the face of the party's ideology. And we're looking around today, and there's been attempts to stop Americans' history or to rewrite it. They've been trying to get rid of the Holocaust for a while, or in our history books, I don't know how much they've infiltrated that with some things, but there's a, they're coming more and more boldly to erase American history. Sometimes it's done with good intentions. There's a lot of hurt in our history, but we can learn from our mistakes, can't we, instead of just erase it? I say this, and I start with this, because we can learn from the past. We learn from the past. We learn how to make proper decisions to make. Um, you know, we build on it. It's, it's the way we learn. We learn by remembering how it was done, and we build, we build on that knowledge. God has given us the gift of memory. It's not like we have a memory and, oh, well, we can use it to, to glorify God. No. He built into us a memory, the ability to remember and memorize, as we memorize our verses, is a gift from God, and it's a gift that he commands us to use. First of all, God has a memory, Psalm 105.8. God remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. If he remembers something forever, That's a pretty good memory, isn't it? What about the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me, of him. He wants us to remember him. John 2.22, Jesus was talking about, that we studied this last year, when he was raised from the dead, after he had been raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he said things to them that didn't make sense at the time. And then when they unfolded, it was like, oh, yeah, we remember he said this to us. A very comforting um, aspect of our memory. So we need to remember, and we need to remember, and we need to have history books to help us recall things, don't we? Because we need to learn of prior events. And the book of Acts is excellent history. Some of the Bible is poetry, some is um, prophecy, but there's a lot of history in here. And we said last week that Acts, Luke's writings in Acts, gives us a timeline where we can plug in uh, the epistles and the other writings that are there. 
So, excellent history, and Christianity is a historical faith. Okay, it's not built on an ideology where nothing else matters. History. So let's take a look at it. Our chapter here, or the first book, part of the book, starts with uh, 40 days here, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Um, And Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus, like he was writing the Gospel of Luke 2, one narrative divided in the Um, in scriptures by the Gospel of John. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began, that word began, things that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is a loaded, loaded passage right there. Luke is saying to his friend that he is writing things that he had written about what Jesus had begun to do and teach in his uh, gospel. Luke 1 Um, Luke writes, inasmuch as many other people have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, the apostles, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So there are many people that were writing things. It seemed good to me. It seemed good to Luke also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. So he considered also, it's very important for me to go ahead and also write an orderly account of things. He was a a doctor, and so he was into detail, he was into research, he was into facts, um, medicine and the science of it, and this because of this, cause and effect, and what's going on. So he had a scientific mind um, that helped him be able to collect this information and compile it and put it together in great detail and accuracy. Things that Jesus had taught about God, but Jesus also showed them what God was like. It was a a, um, history based on, and it's hot in here, a history based on the life of Jesus. Not on a philosophy, not on an idea, but on the life of Jesus. So, so Jesus' whole life revealed not just teachings about God, but also revealed who he was. Proven fact that it was there. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering with many proofs. Many appearings. He manifested himself to them. They were there. They saw him die. They saw him hang on the cross. They saw him when he was, the spear went into his side and the blood and the water came out. They buried him in the grave. It was a dead body they buried in the grave. There was no doubt about that in anyone's mind. It was, a dead body's a dead body. It was dead. Um, and so when he appeared to them alive, to them, eyewitnesses of it, this was their evidence that they had. Appearing to them, manifesting himself to them. They needed to have the confidence of the resurrection 
in order to pass on the truths about Jesus Christ and his deity. It couldn't be hearsay. They had to say, I know without a shadow of a doubt, because I was there, that this Jesus died and rose again. They had to be enthusiastic about it. Wouldn't you be enthusiastic about that? <laughs> My word. The excitement. You wouldn't, no one, forget, I don't care what you say, it doesn't matter if you believe it. I know for a fact, without a shadow of a doubt, that this happened. Many proofs. If we go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 5 to 8, Paul talks about, and that Jesus appeared to um, Cyphus, or to Peter, then he to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five thousand five hundred brothers at one time, most of them who were still alive today through this writing of Corinthians. Some have fallen asleep. He also appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. So there's a record, and all these people, five hundred plus people, eyewitness to alive Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The result of these appearances, absolutely convinced that Jesus rose. Absolutely convinced. So that leaves our argument. When we're looking at history, we're looking at trials and evidence and things like that, here's the presenting case then, the argument. The resurrection is a fact because these people witnessed it. A dead body and then the the. Jesus rose again, touching him, eating with him. He was there. This was an alive body. So that is a a fact. They knew Jesus had been raised from the dead. Then from that, if the resurrection is a fact, and it is, then it proves the deity of Jesus since Jesus claimed his father would do this. He was God. He did that. The Father did this. Jesus talked beforehand that the Father would do this. The Father, God, as they knew it. So this is the deity of Christ. A divine Christ, a Christ who is God himself, must speak truth. God isn't going to lie. Okay, Satan's a liar. A divine God is a truth speaker. He is true. He is absolute. And because he is God and he is truthful... Everything he does is, is true. It's not a lie. And so the final conclusion of all this is if what Jesus says is true, because we just proved that he is God, son of God, like he said he was, rose from the dead. If what he says is true, then we can trust everything he teaches about, right? He's not going to lie. And we have to follow this argument. Today, Jesus does not manifest himself. Some people claim that they see him, but he does not because he manifested himself back there, evidence of those men who wrote the scriptures through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need to manifest himself today because what he has done is complete and it's written. We have the Bible, John 20, 29. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, all of us, who have not seen and yet have believed. And First Peter one eight, Peter says, "Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see, you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." And the more you walk with God, the more you apply His Scripture, the more real He becomes without a shadow of a doubt. So these men have the confidence to go out and talk about the truth.
And that's what we need to have as a church, the confidence to go out and talk about Jesus. And this is what we're going to get into now because it's all about witnessing. So these first 11 verses are just packed with the presence of Christ and talking about Christ and all the times he saw and he's talking to them now before he ascends into heaven. And it's also filled with the Holy Spirit or the Trinity. Um, he tells him it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he gets the Trinity in there also. Promises. It's all about Jesus. And then they witness his ascension. They're standing there. And you know what? We didn't have any of these holograms happening back then. Today, may, and that's probably why Jesus came, or Jesus came when he came at the time of history when he came. Because we can't say, oh, well, it's just a hologram. Or you, you know, whatever. And they watched him ascend into heaven. And when they were looking up, dumbfounded, because <laughs> just watching him disappear, what do we have? We have these angels in verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. An eyewitness to the ascension also. No one knows when he's going to return, but we must live in anticipation because when he returns, we want to be found faithful and true and um, witnessing for him to be ready. We need to be working out our salvation for two reasons that we have. We need to be witnesses to him for two reasons. One, in John 9, verse 1 to 5, it's to make God... Jesus be known. As Jesus passed, and we had this last, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember what Jesus said to him? It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who has sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. We're not focusing on the sin. We're focusing in on the the great display that God does of redemption and healing. That's the work. And these things that are out there in the world, why? So God, we can see God's hand in things as they happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to be working until he comes again or until we're we're retired (laughs) is in Revelation 3, verse 3. Jesus is talking to the church in Sardis. Remember, remember, then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, and you will not know at what hour I will come. So we want to be found faithful and true. The Christian who is not witnessing is not really obeying God. We just don't get saved and sit home and watch TV. Our work is to reveal the works of God. And the biggest thing that that happens that we can be a part of is how he's transforming our lives to be Christ-like. 
how we're turning the other cheek, how we're being able to be patient in a difficult, how we can have hope when something goes on, when we, you know, how we're living out our faith. That's a huge, huge witness. Jesus gave them a mandate to be missionaries. And he's placed that on us also. So we're going to take a zero-in look at verse 7 and 8, and then we're going to finish off the rest of the chapter. But 7 and 8, our memory verse, is about our, and uh, the Great Commission, kind of. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, like a beautiful writer that he is, a historical writer, that's the the index of Acts right there. Okay? It's our outline. Chapters 1 to 7, it's preaching in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12, the gospel expands into Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 13 to 28, it's preached throughout the Roman world that they knew at that time. So there's a little outline there in our memory verse on what's going on here. And we can see those breaks as we study between uh, when they move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And the Holy Spirit's going to have a certain... um, role to play in those times also. So it's the Great Commission. Jesus gives a plan for witnessing. First of all, Jesus is the model of the plan. Um, John 17, 18, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm sending you into the world as I have been sent. God the Father sent Jesus down to be a witness, to let us know what God is like, to see the great work of redemption and um, and, and the payment for our sins and, and the way back to God and to have, have a be, have fellowship with our creator. Jesus prepared the way and he was sent. And so now he's sending the disciples and he's sending us out with this message to the world. So he's the model. Jesus has also given us the authority to be the witnesses in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, All authority was given to him and now he's passing the authority on to us. If someone... <laughs> Any of you who have children, a um, couple of them anyways, and they'll be playing, and one of them will be the tattletale and go in and say something, and you tell them, oh, go back and tell them my say. So, mom said, blah, 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 and they're like, who are you? You know, you've given that kid an authority to do that, right? But do the siblings really buy in? You, this happens, doesn't it? Did they really tell you, you know? It doesn't carry a whole lot of weight. But for Jesus, he had the authority. He's giving it to us. You give that child authority to go tell the rest of them. They better knock it off because if I have to stop what I'm doing and come in there, there's really going to be trouble, right? So this is the authority that Jesus has given us to be his witnesses to the world. And then in Acts, in these two verses here, he's also given us another plan for witnessing that it will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We will do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that we have to proclaim the truth. And we can see that this first generation of of believers, when we get to the end of Acts, that they have accomplished their goal to, to spread the truth 
through the uttermost parts of what the known Roman world was like at that time. Every island, every mountain, every crevice, ancient writings support the fact that Christianity took off like wildflower within 30 years because it was the power of the Holy Spirit. We also see in verse 7 and 8 that Jesus is correcting some profound misunderstandings that these disciples had at this time. Now remember, there are a bunch of Jewish fishermen Luke is a Gentile, but he's at this point when the Jesus was here just kind of watching and writing things down and stuff like that. Um, but he became a believer. But the Jews really thought that they had this idea that this is what's going to happen. Because they asked the question in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? Are you going to take the kingdom that David had when it was in its heyday or Solomon when the, it was like the big Mecca of the whole world and the Queen of Sheba would come and get the wisdom of Solomon? Are you going to restore that kingdom like that? That's what they were looking for to the Israel's glory days. And Jesus was letting them know that there was something new and different Something that's never existed before because he shuts them down. (laughs) He says, it's not for you to know about the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You, and he turns the tables and he says, but you guys, don't worry about what I'm going to do. You guys are going to do this. It's not going to be just Israel. It's not going to be... They despised the Gentiles, so it was going to be a worldwide um, kingdom that was going to have. It wasn't going to be ethnically restricted to Jewish people or those who, okay, you can kind of come in and do this. It was going to go beyond the bounds of anything that they could have ever imagined because it never happened before. Plus, they were looking for something geographically restricted to the kingdom. There, well, wouldn't David's kingdom was in Jerusalem? Isn't it going to be here too? And Jesus was letting them know this was going to be far and wide. You're going to take it to the uttermost parts of the world. You're going to go with this. So he was educating them on what was going to happen with this witnessing plan that they were going to do. He explains a little bit about the nature of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But it's not a spiritual kingdom like an invisible kingdom. We think about spirit as invisible. It's here. It's another dimension. We can't pick, up, pick it up with our senses, whatever. But the spiritual that Jesus was talking about here is, is Holy Spirit spiritual, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing. Um, and it's going to be eternal, and it's never going to pass away. You will be empowered, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, are we thinking about power, power? Thinking about that kind of power? Strength and fortitude? The word power here in verse 8 is a different kind of power. Actually, it's even a different kind of power than just in verse 7, where he says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own power. Sometimes King James has power there. That's an authority. And the second power is a different one. It's power that means dynamus, dynamis. 
explosive, life-changing power. We get the word dynamite from this word power. A power that flows from God. A power that causes sinful men to repent and seek righteousness. A power that is so explosive and invasive and... That when the inventor of dynamite was looking for uh, something to name his new invention, he asked a friend, I don't know, this is, so, this is some kind of power that we've never experienced before. Do you have a word for it or something? And his friend said, how about dyna- dynamis? And he said, okay, dynamite. So our word dynamite comes from this powerful, engulfing, life-changing um, Power of the Holy Spirit. That is the word that is used here for power. And it is a power. It's a power that changed me. Because <laughs> I was pretty, pretty bad. It's a power that keeps me going every day and pulls me back on track when I get off. Um, so then it's also a kingdom of power. It's a powerful kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's also a kingdom of truth. When Jesus was talking to Pilate, when he had been brought to Pilate's headquarters in um, John 18, he's talking to Pilate, and he, Pilate, are you a king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you, do you say that this is on your own accord, or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I am, a, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, and what have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom that he's talking about here is a kingdom of truth. A kingdom of truth. There are no lies in this kingdom. A witness to the truth. And that's what we are. We are a witness to the truth. Evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live in a holy way, a holy set-apart way when the rest of the world's falling apart in fear and who knows what else or going after riches or storage or buying bunkers under the earth. I don't know what they're doing out there. But we live by the power of God. And finally in this kingdom, we see in Revelation twelve eleven that the victory of the saints to overcome the devil is in their witness. Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him, they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's pretty powerful for our foe, isn't it? It's a worldwide kingdom, spiritual, empowered by the Holy Spirit, one of truth, and one worldwide. So our witness, our witness is so that God will be remembered. During this 10-day waiting period now, Jesus has ascended. They watched him go up, and we have 10 days. Of course, they don't know it's 10 days, but something's going to happen in these 10 days um, before Pentecost. Pentecost is going to happen 10 days from this Time. And so we're just going to briefly, five things are happening there in, um, during this 10-day waiting period, and then we can 
then that's all I have to say to you guys today. So let me go over those. Acts, um, this part of Acts, or this verses here from eh, 6 to the end of first chapter 1, is kind of a bridge book. A bridge book is a book that's used when, okay, we're kind of waiting to happen. Joshua in the Old Testament is another bridge book. Joshua, um, before they really got their orders to go into the promised land, and they were waiting there. They were hanging out there. It was a difficult time for them before they really started to move. But a lot of things were going on to prepare them. And so here we see, during the last half of this chapter, that it was a time of preparation. Um, um, and Joshua is just kind of four days they had to wait before they could move forward. Here it's ten days. And when we wait, it can be very difficult. We wait in waiting room. Well, we can't even wait in waiting rooms anymore, can we? We wait in our car in the parking lot. We wait for a phone call. Waiting can be very difficult. We wait for twiddle our thumbs because we're people of action. We want to do things. We want to get things done. So waiting is hard. Better yet, we want God to do something. We want him to act. We're, there's, we're not seeing anything, you know, be, the, between the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. God was silent. There wasn't any activity going on. So this time here, these four days, or these ten days that they're there, is a waiting time, but preparation is going on. We first of all see, the first one is a time, when we're waiting, a time to be obedient, Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. And why did they return to Jerusalem? Because we know in verse 4 that he tells them why they were staying with them. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. So they were being obedient. So when we're waiting, doesn't mean that we are, can get anxious and whatever. And, and anxious anxiety is a sin, you guys. We're not trusting God. So when, we, ooh. so when we're waiting on God, we need to... Breathe in flowers and blow out candles. That's what we do. We breathe flowers and we blow out candles. We say we're waiting and we're going to be obedient and we're going to be filled with joy and we're going to have patience. We're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to be kind. When we wait, we can get irritable and short and snap, but that's not a time to sin. So we're seeing here it's a time to be obedient when they went back and did what Jesus had told them to do, to go there and wait. And you know, the harder it is to be obedient, the more we're learning obedience. Because if we're told, if he said to them, go back into Jerusalem and wait until you get filled with her, and they scratch their heads, well, we really don't have any place to go, so, okay, that's probably a good idea, let's go, Right? That's not really learning obedience. That's kind of we rationalize that this is the best option here and we're agreeing with God. When he asks us to do something and it's difficult and we do it, that is learning obedience. Go home and try this one out on Oliver. It's hard to learn obedience because our rational minds want to think it through and say, well, should I believe Grammy or not? I mean, yeah, I guess it does make it. Because I do. I, I do calisthenics with logic with him sometimes, and I, sometimes I just want to say, because I said so, right? <laughs> oh, grandkids. Sometimes they're easier than your own kids, sometimes. But anyways, 
to learn obedience can be difficult, um, but we can do that during this time of waiting. Secondly, it was a time of fellowship. We see in verses 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. With one accord, together, like-minded, one purpose. They were all there together serving the same purpose. They're all waiting. They're all being obedient to Jesus as they waited for this promise to happen. Um, And it looks like from this place here, it goes on to say, they voted themselves together, and, and they kind of list who all was there. Um, there was like 11 there that they list from verse 14. All of these were praying together with Mary. In those days, Peter stood up and blah, blah, blah. And eventually they got down to, there was 120 of them there. Later on in this right, I don't have it marked. I'm not going to waste your time looking for that. But they kind of grew in number. They had fellowship. They had gathered together. Their people need people. Oh, my gosh, if we're not learning that today. We need fellowship, don't we? We need to be together. We can't be isolated. We need to hang out. So waiting and, and, and it, it means also a time of fellowship together. Um, Hebrews 10.25 says, do not neglect meeting together, okay? I don't know if any of you heard in the news this last week that um, John MacArthur's church, uh, Greece, has won their lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles um, for shutting them down for their $800,000 to pay off their legal expenses. That was a huge endeavor that that church took over to say, we are going to keep our doors open. And they went up against the governor, and they won. That's a big win for us. We do not forsake assembling together. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm glad the law agrees with God, but they really pushed for that, and they had success with that. So we're thankful to see that. It gives the rest of us confidence. Um, So do not forsake assembling together. Fellows in a ship, the word means fellows in a ship. I've told you this before, right? We're all rowing, and it's not a speedboat. Back in the day when they had ships and there were no motors, they all lined up in the middle of the galley there, and they all kind of rowed, and they all had to row at the same thing because if they didn't, they'd get all their oars tangled up. So they all had to go, fellows in a ship, doing the same thing, headed in the same direction. That's what the word fellowship comes from. Okay, so they had fellowship. They were in constant prayer, devoted themselves to prayer, talking to God. You know, there was a little saying, I don't know who, I can't give the credit to who it was, but I heard it a long time ago. Um, The real work of the church is not what we do as a result of prayer. The real work of the church is the prayer itself. The time we spend on our knees, the time we spend devoted to talking to God brings us like-minded, makes us into one accord there. That's the power. And from that, there's results that come out of that. Um, Jesus taught them how to pray in Matthew 6 before they left. He was telling them how to pray. And the biggest thing about that Lord's Prayer that was there is not so much the Lord's Prayer in the little template, But what he was teaching them ahead of time, 
was more or less, you can go back and look at this one. What he was teaching them ahead of time was more or less the object of our prayer, who we're praying to. Who of you would not give something valuable to your son? That's the relationship there that's happening. So they were devoted to prayer, um, constant communion with God, walking with God. The fourth thing is we see that it's a time of study. Hmm, study. How do we get that out of there? Well, verse 16 says, In those days Peter stood up among them, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Where did he get that? This guy was a fisherman, right? They were studying the Old Testament. They were studying what needed to be done. They knew from Scripture, from Old Testament, from David, that it was predicted, prophesied what would happen to Judas. And when that happened to Judas, they knew what to do about that. They knew that his place had to be um, filled again. So there's a time of study when that happens, studying Scripture. These two things go together, ladies. Prayer, when we're talking to God, and scripture, when we're listening to God. We can't just be talking to God and really not know what God's plan is for us or whatever about here in La La Land because God becomes a vending machine to us, and he is not a vending machine. We don't plug it in and say, I need this or this. Through prayer or through Bible study, we get to understand the mind of God and who he is and our purpose and connection with God and and what we need to do with God. And from that, our prayer life comes into helping me to be more like this person. Hand in hand, they go. And if we're really smart or wise, we'd um, let God do most of the talking. Some of us don't do that so much, do we? (laughs) The final thing here is why they were together waiting. It was a time for the recognition and choice of leaders. Always looking for leaders. We're always looking for leaders here, right? (laughs) People to shepherd God's flock. Because as more and more people became believers... And entered into the church. They needed to be mentored. It's not just, okay, you know, say, raise your hand, say you'll be saved, and then you're on your own. No, these people needed to be mentored and, 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 and poured into and, and truths be taught to them and, and taken alongside. That's just the beginning of their, their walk with God. And so that requires leadership to be able to do that. We always, always need to be looking for that and always be looking. Here's one way to look at it. Always be looking for someone to replace you because it's not about a position. Always be looking for something. As, you, as you're a core leader or a children's teacher or a teaching director or whatever it is, you always think, oh, who's out there that can kind of, you know, come alongside and, and learn this and take this and go with this and learning and um, So it's an important duty of the church to always equip the next generation. And that's what we're not seeing in church. I had the statistics last week of how our youth have fallen away from church attendance and how, how biblically illiterate they have become and how, how professed Christians in that, whatever it was, 18 to 35 age group have misconceptions, theological uh, lies 
that they don't even really know. They're believers, but they don't understand the word of God because they haven't studied it. We need to be always equipping the next generation. We need to witness so that God will be remembered. That's the biggest thing here. We need to witness. Jesus came and he revealed to us what God was like. And he's sending us in the same vein that we are to witness so we can let others know what God is like. We're not God. We're not God. But we're letting others know what God is like as we are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. I'll leave you with this. We witness so that God will be remembered. Revelation 1 Five to seven. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father to him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's what we want others to remember. God, help us to be witnesses to you. Help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Help us to trust your Spirit that you will equip us and lead the way for us, that you will be glorified. We love you, Jesus. Amen.